You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. I was talking with a fellow who, a um, student of ours this year, who does marketing for, for a, a major organization in terms of some of their seminars. And, and he said, if you want to get a big crowd to a seminar... He said, um, it isn't that hard, you just have to market it right, and the, the kind of things that market it well and that get the crowd are things like to building a better marriage. Six keys to unlock the mystery of your marriage. He says, people will flock to that. Why? If I believed the person had them, I'd go too. Because I wouldn't mind building my city. I wouldn't mind being able to live my life in a way which doesn't require radical dependence on somebody I cannot control. I don't like that. Because frankly, until I get to heaven, I'm going to have a nagging suspicion within me that he isn't all that good. Oswald Chambers said it well when he said, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God isn't very good. And if I'm not sure he's that good, and I'm not because the data is not very compelling. Look at life. You explain to me why this tragedy happened. You explain to me why this is fair, that this person has to go through all that. You explain the fairness of your background and your miserable history. Make that look like God is good. You can't do it. You've got to go to other data. And if you come to the conclusion, if there's a natural energy within you, that the data of life drives you to believe even more strongly that God isn't all that good, then you're going to be frantically, angrily demanding that there be a manageable order that you can somehow make life work without ever radical trust in God. Because who of us wants to trust somebody that we're not really sure is good? We'd love his help because he can do some things we can't. But trust is a very different story. very concerned about those kind of matters as we think through a method of biblical counseling. A personal note to make clear what I'm trying to say here. Most of you know that a year ago on March 3rd, my brother died in an airplane crash. And some of you have heard me tell the story. I've told it to several audiences since that event, that two weeks after the airplane crash on March 3rd, that um, all of us shed our tears, and we still do. But two weeks after, I had this strange sense within me. I guess I'm turning into a mystic, maybe. I'm not sure. But a strange sense within me that there were tears that had yet to be shed. And I wasn't sure what they were about. I had shed my tears over Bill's death. But that day, I can recall telling my wife that there were tears inside that were still locked up that I hadn't wept. And that those tears were coming from a source deeper than the loss of my brother. Well, that night, March 17th, I got up, couldn't sleep. And I remember that night, for some reason, becoming very, very aware in a way that seemed fresh to me. It wasn't a new thought, but the intensity was profoundly new. That nothing in this life is guaranteed. I have no idea about tomorrow. I have no idea right now what's happening in my son's lives. What matters most to me, I least control. And that night, that began to drive me nuts. Because I pray for people I love when they travel. I'm sure I prayed for Bill's safety as he flew. Mom and Dad flew out a couple days ago. I prayed for their safety. But I remember as I prayed for their safety, my thought was, will this prayer be any more effective than my prayer for Bill's safety? How do you come believing when you pray? 
What does that mean? And that night I just became overwhelmed with the fact that there's nothing that's guaranteed in this life. And I became overwhelmed similarly with the fact that there are problems in my life now that I really thought by middle age, I'm 47, would be gone by now and they're not. If I'm becoming mature, I've got to define maturity a whole lot differently than I thought I was going to. If this is maturity, we must have a whole new definition, folks. And I'm willing to adjust, you know, my definition. It became crystal clear in those moments that I wasn't getting better in ways I thought I was supposed to by now. It became crystal clear that I can't control what matters the most. In the middle of all that, in a way that seems so fresh, I remember realizing that all I have is God. It seemed like a brand new thought to me. And I cried out to him that night, never forget my words. I cried out and said this, Lord, I know you're all I have, but I don't know you well enough for you to be all I need. And at that point, since that time, I think there's been a different level of preoccupation in my soul about what does it mean to find him? And to know him better than I do with the awareness that the degree to which I know the Lord today isn't enough to face whatever's coming up tomorrow. And I've been consumed with what it means to find God. And I've concluded this. There's no organized way of finding Him. Now, all of us have found God if we're Christians. We found God through His Son, Jesus, who died for us. And we know God is our Father. Christ is our Savior. The Spirit is our indwelling Counselor. And friend, we found God. I believe that meaningfully. I can say I found Him. You can say you found Him. But I can sure tell you this. I haven't found much of Him. You know how I know? Because I'm still drawn by sin. When I get to heaven, I'm not going to sin. Why not? Because God's going to remove the sin nature from me, going to cut it out so I can't do it? I don't think that's the case at all. I think the reason I'm not going to sin in heaven is not because, now follow my words carefully, and just put up with some heresy for the next moment. The reason I'm not going to sin in heaven, I believe, is not because sin will be impossible in heaven, but rather because sin will be unthinkable in heaven. I'll know Him. And I'll know him as completely good. And the idea of doing anything which would get in the way of knowing him because he's completely good would just be absurd. It wouldn't even occur to me. I'll never sin. Why? Because I won't be able to? That's a dumb question. It's the unthinkable. I want to find him now in a way that will increase the unthinkability of sin. For now, I find it rather thinkable. Don't you? I find it palatable. I find it drawing. And yet it seems to me that if I'm going to help my counselees and if I'm going to effectively move in my own life, at the root of all of my counseling efforts, whether with an MPD or an unhappy husband or a depressed person or an eating disorder difficulty, at the root of all this, there has to be some movement toward finding God that happens as a result of my counseling session that becomes the most passionate reality in that person's life. So that after years of counseling, their response is not, um, well, I found God, but boy, do I have these problems. More, yeah, I've got a ton of problems. I thought it'd be a whole lot less by now than they were. But you know, something is so much more important to me now. Is that what you're after as you counsel? Or is that kind of a side issue? Finding him, to the degree that we can do it in this life, 
does not necessarily relieve the presenting problem. Finding God, rather, redirects our energy away from building our cities and directs it toward knowing Him better and reflecting Him to others in all our relationships. I follow a very closely knit syllogism. If it's true that the root of most of our troubles really is self-centeredness, do you buy that? That ultimately the root is not how you've been, been, been victimized, no matter how bad it is, but ultimately the root of your problems, the root of my problems, is the interaction of victimization and all the dynamics that are caused by that and my self-centeredness. Take away the self-centeredness and I wouldn't have the same problems. How do I know? We have one example of somebody who was badly abused who wasn't self-centered. He did all right. You see? Therefore, I conclude that if I were not self-centered, if I were like our Lord, so aware of the Father that sin's unthinkable, then no matter what happens in my life, there would be struggles, there would be scars, there would be problems, there would be grief, there would be weeping, even to the point of where my tears become like blood. There would be great, great struggle, but there wouldn't be what we call today psychological problems. Therefore, as I pursue what it means to find the Lord, and if finding the Lord redirects my energy away from myself to pursuing Him, then those problems that have their root in self-centeredness will, in fact, disappear as a byproduct of finding God. But there are many other problems that are inevitable as we live life in a fallen world, that will continue. And those inevitable struggles and problems in living become opportunities to know Him better. That's what's on my mind as the week begins. Two things. First thing, four questions that raise issues for us to wrestle with. Second thing, the priority of finding God in all of our efforts to deal with our problems. If you're a person who is asking the first question, if you're a person who's asking the first question, how do I deal with the more unusual things in my counseling ministry? I'm dealing with a lot of very strange phenomena, and I'm hearing stories I've never heard before. I'm seeing symptoms I've never heard before. I have an MPD now with eight altars, and I'm not sure what to do about it. Can't you help me deal with that? If that's the question that's most pressing in your mind, then I would think that what you would define as the most helpful input would be a focus on dynamics. And that would mean that you would take the presenting problem and rather than understanding something about what it means to pursue God and to find Him in the middle of whatever struggles are going on, you're going to get off track, I would suggest. And you're going to spend a great deal of time in getting caught up in the murky cesspool of all the inner workings of the human personality, attempting to resolve the presenting problem and your, your argument might be that if I can, through interpretation of dynamics and bringing together all the altars and abreacting all the painful events of the past, if I can do all that kind of thing and somehow achieve some level of integration, then we can get around to the spiritual life, then I would suggest you're, you're missing a biblical method of counseling. If that's your way of thinking, I, I think I'd want to argue with you. Suppose you are more concerned with the second issue, the issue of the demonic, and you, um, 
it's so easy for us to get out of focus, isn't it? That we, we come up with some understanding of something and that becomes central to all of our thinking. A person comes in with a problem and if we're thinking much more about the reality of spiritual warfare than we are about anything else, then your mind is going to be on moving from presenting problem to finding God through overcoming demonic activity through some form of deliverance and that will be your method of counseling. Whether it's Anderson's material, whether it's Lubeck or Warner or any of the fellows that are writing on this topic, you're going to be studying methods of overcoming demonic activity in pursuit of knowing the Lord better. If you're following the model of dynamics, my guess is you're going to become more intrigued with the internal reality of the self than with the character of God. If you're thinking more about spiritual warfare, it's very likely that you're going to get more caught up in experiencing the evidence of the supernatural than in directly living in union with Christ. Suppose you're thinking about the third category, the third question, the issue of all the dysfunctional things that have affected a person's self-esteem and people with all the addictive difficulties who have such a, a deep, toxic sense of shame in the core of their being, and they have, they have tremendous hatred for who they are as women, for who they are as men, and you want them to find some method for moving out of that shame into a recovery of themselves, if you have over-focused on that, and that becomes your sole emphasis, then I think your model of counseling will look like this. I know I'm being somewhat simplistic, but essentially it'll be a focus on recovery. We'll start with the presenting problem, the addictive disorder, the codependency relationship, and you're going to be learning to enjoy the gospel of affirmation where the cross becomes primarily an affirmation of people that God thought it was worth dying for versus what I take the gospel to more centrally be, a manifestation of the glory of God, the character of God, as someone who is willing to die for the unworthy. Not so much a testimony to our worthiness, although there is some point to that that I think is very important to realize, but more centrally, the cross is not an affirmation of me, it's an affirmation of Christ, and it's a rather uh, strong insult to me that leads to life when I embrace it. But if your focus is on recovery, you'll be redefining the gospel in ways that will lead to finding self as the ultimate priority, and that will not require the resources of Christ in the way that they need to be required. If you're into the fourth concern, if as, as you read your Bible, you're saying to yourself that there seem to be... Um, so much, there seems to be so much emphasis on obedience and biblical principles of living, <clears throat> and somebody comes in to see you who's depressed, struggling with marital difficulties, then your mind will immediately go towards applying biblical principles and exhorting the discipline to obey them. That will be your method of counseling. I'm reducing things to a rather simplistic form, I grant you. There's a caricature level to what I'm saying, but I hope the caricature is bringing out the core essentials. That will be your method of counseling, That'll be your model of counseling. You might put a lot of complexity into it, but that will be your model. The focus on obedience, if that becomes an over kind of a focus. Well, you know that IBC is committed to never having a simple chart. Our purpose is to give the illusion of order until people are sucked into it I realize there's no manageability whatsoever, and then in sheer hatred of IBC, turn to Christ and dependence. 
Now you know what we're after. Before I put a chart on the overhead designed to elicit rage, let me say an obvious sentence that um, whatever, whatever strategy I'm following in dealing with the core realities of my life really needs to be the same strategy I'm following in trying to help you deal with yours. So many times what I'm really doing to deal with my life is something very different from what I do to deal with yours. That's a big mistake. What have I been doing the last six months to deal with my rather significant battles with insomnia? Am I exploring my past? Some? I think it works a whole lot better. A tape of Christian music that I put on before I go to sleep. How can you get 20 sessions out of that? You've got to complicate the obvious. Why have my wife and I, who both have had some significant trouble with sleeping over these past six months, why have we taken to, before we go to sleep, not only putting on Christian music, not only reading scripture at some length, but also praying together for God's protection and asking our friends to pray for us that we'll sleep better? What model of counseling am I following as I deal with my insomnia? What model of counseling do I follow when I deal with my sleeplessness where I get up and struggle? What model of counseling do I follow when I seem to shift from one kind of a person who's fairly friendly and kind to somebody else who's stiff and angry and can't seem to break out of it? Why a couple days ago as my wife went up to the mountains to spend two or three days of just being together and relaxing and getting ready for the seminar, why half the way up the trip, an hour drive up to the mountains, why did something inside of me click to where I became rather um, discouraged and my smile at my wife was hollow and she knew it? How do I deal with that? Do I look at my own dynamics? My own history? Do I look at satanic act activity? Do I look for issues of shame from which I want to be recovered? Do I read my Bible to try to do better? How do you deal with your lives? I think it's important to really ask that question. When I put the chart on the overhead, I'm almost feeling a little embarrassed to do it. Um, and as, as, as clinical and academic as this chart is going to look when I put it on the overhead, I've, I've thought about this long and hard, particularly these last couple days. And, and I believe this is, um, this is the strategy I try to follow as I live my life. It includes a lot of elements. I'm calling it, rather auspiciously, the IBC method. And this is going to be the outline for our evening's lectures for the rest of the week. Are you ready? You all going to boo and hiss and throw stones? And Here we go. There it is. Okay. Did you all get it? The seminar is over. We can go home. Folks, it's as simple as can be. And I really do mean that. When you take the simple and try to sketch it, it looks complex. This is not a complicated chart. I know it looks complicated. And it will feel complicated to you for 10, 12 years. 
and then you'll realize it's useless and try something else. But let's see if we can, let's see if I can make some of this a little bit simple. And this is going to be the, the sketch that we're going to follow for the rest of this week. And I believe by, I really do believe this, I hope it's true, that by the end of the week it'll make a little bit of sense to you. And that it might actually be helpful in guiding you as you think through your own life in the light of Scripture, in the light of God's purposes, in the light of what life is all about, in the light of dynamics, in the light of deliverance, in the light of recovery, in the light of obedience. All those issues are tried in some level to be taken into account, I'm sure inadequately in many ways, but it's a basic structure that I, I hope will be helpful to you. I know you're all trying to copy it down now. And as you continue to copy, if that's what you choose to do, let me just tell you what some of these elements mean and tell you how the rest of the week is going to work as far as evening lectures is concerned, are concerned. The flow starts up here with Counselor's purpose. It's the first thing you ought to be concerned with in my mind. What's your purpose? As you interact with somebody, and your purpose as you interact with somebody as a counselor, should be no different, ultimately, than your purpose as you chat with a friend over lunch. Or as you call up your son on the telephone and say, how you doing? Or as you take your wife out for dinner. Or as you meet a new friend and develop a relationship. That your purpose, ultimately, ought to be the same. Now, a dentist can't say that. When my dentist sees me socially, his purpose is to say, hi, Larry, how you doing? When he sees me professionally, his purpose is to fix problems in my mouth. There are very different purposes when a professional is operating as a professional than when he's operating in his lay capacity. But I would suggest that a counselor's purpose, when you get way down to the bottom of it, must remain constant. Whether he's socializing, there'd be differences, of course, but the root purpose must remain constant. What is that purpose? Let me say it to you very simply. I'm not going to cover the whole chart tonight, of course, but let me just say something very simply about this. It's a repetition of an earlier thought. That the counselor's purpose in all that he does, all that she does, is to reflect Christ in a way, to reflect Christ, as I relate, in a way that encourages the reversal of the direction of a person's energy. I want to reflect Christ in a way that encourages whatever effect I have on you as I'm playing tennis with you or counseling with you or chatting over a meal. I'd like to somehow reflect something about the character of God as made known only in Christ that would have the effect of reversing, reversing the direction of your energy from reversing the direction of your energy from an earnest search to find yourself toward an earnest search to find God. That sounds very heady and ethereal and spiritual, but to me it's a very practical, personal thing. I want to be thinking about that as my counselee sits down and says, my marriage is a mess. Rather than saying, I want to build a marriage. That's important, but it's not primary. I'm very depressed and I feel terrible. That's important, but it's not primary. One of the interesting things that I noticed, and I think Dan would bear this out in our relationship, he and I are pretty open with each other, not completely, but pretty open about our mutual struggles. And um, we've had some hard times recently in our own individual lives. And when, I'll, when I say to Dan, um, you know, he said, I had sleep last night, and I'll say, terrible, it's been, been awful. Dan hardly ever tries to offer a solution. 
something about his response is kind of like, yep. Why do I find that helpful? Does he do better with his clients? Can you imagine going to Danford Counseling? He goes, yep. Why, when he tells me that he's struggling, and we fail each other in significant ways, I'm sure, here, but why, when he tells me that he's struggling, do I find no energy within me that wants to move in and try to figure it out and solve it? No more than he wants to figure out my problems and solve mine. That's not the energy that's between us when we're struggling. What's our purpose as we talk with people about their lives? That's the first element in the method I want to sketch for you. That method must be in my, or that purpose rather, must be in my mind as the counseling session begins, as the person presents their problem, whether it's over lunch or in a counselor study. The person makes known their presenting problem, which I define very simply as whatever it is that brings the person consciously into counseling. Whatever it is the person says when you say, how can I help? What'd you come for? Whatever they say at that point, that I define as the presenting problem. When the person presents their problem, I suggest this, that you need to be very, very clear on what it is that needs to be changed. What is going on beneath that presenting problem that I label the fallen structure of the personality? What is going on beneath the surface, and I'm going to go through this now without a lot of explanation, so bear with me. I know you'll be confused by 9 o'clock, more than you are even now, but by the rest of the week, I hope to clear up some of it. When a person tells me that they're struggling with whatever they're struggling with, difficult marriage, hating themselves, life isn't working, they're very depressed, they don't know how to get along with their husband, their spouse, their child, their parents, they're worried about job issues, they're staying awake all night, worried about money, whatever the presenting problem is, what is it that we as counselors, acting on the name of God and with the power of the Spirit of God, what is it that we're trying to change? We want to see changed. And I argue that there is a fallen structure to the human personality, which will be my topic tomorrow night. There is a fallen structure to the human personality that is rigidly in place in all of us naturally, and that sanctification can be defined, at least in large part, not completely, as a disruption of a fallen structure that's beneath my presenting problems. You're going to hear a lot about the idea of disruption this week. Counseling is very disrupting. What does it disrupt? It disrupts a structure that's beneath the problem. What's the structure? That's tomorrow night. As I have some understanding of how fallen people work as they interact with lives, as I have some understanding of the fallen structure of the human personality, what that does for me is it gives me some categories for listening to people as they talk about their lives. You tell me, Larry, can I counsel with you? I'm depressed, presenting problem. My immediate assumption is there's a lot of things going on beneath the surface. Call them dynamics if you want. Not a bad word in my vocabulary. There's some fallen structure going on. And as I understand something about this fallen structure, which is true of me, of you, of the MPD, of everybody, there's some core fundamental fallen structure that's going to create in me some ways of listening to you as you talk about your life. What I'm going to do is I'm going to have you shift from talking about your presenting problem to talking about your relationships. Dan's going to deal with that Wednesday night. How do you make that shift? How do you get persons to move with energy away from talking about their presenting problem to talking about things that we think are always beneath presenting problems, and that is a fallen way of handling relationships? Beneath every presenting problem, there's a fallen structure that affects the way we relate. So you tell me you're depressed, and I'll, tell me, I'll, I'll ask you the question like, how, how's your husband handling your depression? 
What's happening in your relationships? What effect is your depression having on your relational, on your relationships with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends, with your job? What is happening in your life relationally? And as you talk about your relationships, I'm going to be listening for the operation of this fallen structure because I'm going to have some categories for listening. And as I listen to you talk about your relationships, your immediate relationship, that's with me, very important tool of the therapist or the counselor. As I listen to you talk about your immediate relationship, that's with me, about your current primary relationships, married, good friends, about your historical relationships when you were a kid with your parents, school teachers. As I listen to all that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you start thinking through three areas of life. I'm going to start directing the conversation to have you thinking through what I call three spheres. Spheres A, B, and C. There's a certain order to them. That will become clear as the week progresses. I'm going to have you thinking about the approach that you take to your relationships. And what I want to get you to think about, what will be my agenda as a counselor, and a counselor's agenda must be controlled by the counselor, not by the counselee. It doesn't mean you can't be sensitive and listen very well. But what you're wanting to move toward, just like witnessing to somebody, you know what the gospel is. The unbeliever doesn't, so you want to present the gospel. Now, how you do that might require a lot of listening and all sorts of things, but, but you want to present the gospel at some point. And a counselor is equally directive, at least theologically. And I'm going to want to be, to be moving you towards talking about your relationships until closure of the kind of energy beneath you as you talk to your husband. I want to begin exposing something about the way you relate. I want to begin enticing you with the possibilities of relating according to the unique design that you were built to relate with. Can you imagine what it would be like, can I imagine what it would be like, if I really loved my wife supernaturally, more and more and more? If I loved my wife the way a man was designed to love a woman? Can you entice me with that? I want to start talking about your approach to relationships, exposing something and enticing something. And as I begin to understand some of the way you relate to people, I'm going to begin talking about your story. And that might take an hour or a couple of years. I don't want you to leave counseling with me having felt that there was something you couldn't talk about. Now, you're not going to tell me your whole life. That would take your whole life again to tell me about I don't care about every detail of your life, but I'd like to hear something of the meaningful parts of your story. And I want to think, as you tell me your story about what your dad was like, what your mom was like, what your childhood was like, what happened when you were a kid, what you struggled with, what you were afraid of, what you woke up in the middle of the night screaming about, what happened when you were a teenager, what the problems were then, what it meant when you began dating and noticing guys or girls, and what happened in your love life, and whether you're married or single, what happened now as as life continues. I'm going to be listening to trying to understand something about how who you are as a unique individual has developed. And I want to be exposing some of the damage that's been done to yourself. And I'd like to entice you with the possibility of giving the part that you hide to other people. I want to move you then down to sphere C where we talk about your understanding of life. What are your deepest passions? Suggesting that perhaps the deepest passions in the human soul, apart from the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the deepest passion is a suspicion that God isn't very good, and therefore a rage at Him that makes me demand a break 
from somebody else. I want to know your understanding of life. Do you believe life is orderly and you must be able to manage it? Or do you believe life is disorderly and you must learn how to trust? That chart will occupy us for the course of the week. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.